You'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 just by way of uh, reminder. I want to anchor the message in the text. Beginning in verse 27, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. When I was with you last a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the second of two messages dealing with the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of His kingdom. And the question we were asking is, what does Genesis 1, 2, and 3 have to do with the end of Revelation? How do these two fit together? And when we consider what we find in paradise before the fall of mankind and what we find afterward, and then what we find in Revelation as God begins to wrap it up, what we really see is that God is in the process of recovering a lost paradise. That Adam and Eve yielded to sin and as a consequence plunged themselves and the whole earth into ruinous disaster. But God is in the process of bringing beauty from the ashes, of recovering the loss, of moving us toward the reestablishment of His kingdom, which will be a transitional period, really. For a thousand years, He will reign and rule the way it should have been done. And then at the end of that period of time, after the final judgment, God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And He, he is moving toward the recovery of paradise, is, is where history is going. And so in Genesis, we have... The, the kernel of that. We have the kind of the insight into what it should have been and what it will be. And so this morning, what I want us to consider is the fact that God is going somewhere. That He's moving toward a predetermined destiny and conclusion. He's taking us toward a specific end. And if he's going somewhere, then there is a process unfolding. There is a continuum. And I I want you to get something in your mind's eye. I want you to see a timeline. Put Genesis over here and put Revelation over here. Put the beginning and put the end. Draw the timeline. And if if we mark it off in major segments, you know, uh, we could start in Genesis and we could fast forward about 2,000 years Abram, and then we could fast forward about 2,000 years to Jesus Christ, and we could fast forward about 2,000 years to us. That gives us some anchoring points, because if you study the genealogies of Scripture, it's more or less 6,000 years since Adam and Eve. So here we are on this timeline. Now, you and I, in June of 2011, occupy a specific point on that line. We are here at this moment in history, at this time, and at this place, along that process, and we are part of this moment where God is working out His plan. And in this moment, you and I have a mission. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are a part of the process. And we are invested with the Holy Spirit and the opportunity to make a difference as a part of God's work in moving toward that goal. So are you with me? God's moving somewhere. He's going toward a conclusion. It is an unfolding process. And right now, 
June 5th, 2011, we are on that timeline in the moment as a part of God's process. So we occupy a place in history that has a purpose and a destiny. Now there's something else that I want us, and this is not new material, but I'm trying to pull some concepts together this morning to underscore a very significant point. One of the things that we have a hard time with doctrinally, and most heresy comes when you take sound doctrine and push it out of balance a little bit. I was going to have everyone take a coin out of their pocket or purse this morning, and I realize not everyone may have a coin on them. But if you had a coin and you were to put it in your hand, here's what I was going to do. So you can play this little game in your imagination. Imagine putting a coin in the palm of your hand, heads up. You know what I mean by that, right? The, the, the side with the guy's head on it is up. We call that heads. The other side we call tails. And here's I was going to have you describe in detail tails without turning the coin over. And unless you're a coin collector, you're going to have a hard time doing that. Because you're not going to know instinctively or intuitively what's on the other side of the coin in detail. My reason for that is oftentimes when we come at doctrine that seems to be intention, it's like that coin. Depending on what side you're looking at is the side you can see most clearly at, at the moment. But then when you turn it over, you kind of obscure what you can't see anymore. And now you're looking at the other side of it. And if we take the truths that are complementary of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, and, and we put them together, if you try to force a merger that is unbiblical, you're going to end up off the path somewhere. One of the things that we know for sure from the Scripture is that God is absolutely sovereign. He is totally in control. He is never off the mark. He, he never is surprised. He knows exactly what he's doing at all times, and he has the authority and power to carry out his will. He is completely sovereign. Within that sovereignty, the Word of God tells us that man has certain freedom. Human beings have certain freedom. God has granted it. Now, we have a problem now since the fall of Adam and Eve and that we're in bondage to sin and, and something has to be done about that. But if we go back to the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God gave them a legitimate choice. He gave them freedom to choose within His sovereignty. They did not surprise Him by their choice. It did not take him off guard. He did not have to go back to plan B because he already knew how history was going to unfold and he already had prepared for that. That was a part of his plan. But Adam and Eve had a real choice. If you take that away from them, I don't care how you try to do the dance, you end up making God responsible for sin. And so there is freedom of choice within the sovereignty of God. It's important that we understand that because we need to understand the essence of the temptation and the nature of redemption and what I'm going to say this morning about intercessory prayer. As we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, they were not made autonomous and sovereign. They were made to rule over the planet and subdue it and have authority under the authority of God. They could not do anything they pleased. They couldn't change the rotation of the earth. They couldn't reorient the sun and the solar system. They couldn't control the planets. Their freedom was limited. And also, we presume from the implications of the nature of the temptation that in their conversations with God on a daily basis as they walked with Him in the cool of the day, at least one of the topics that was covered was His God's plan, God's purposes for their lives in that day, in that moment. 
The reason that I believe that is true is because when the devil came to them in chapter 3, we have the record in verse 5, he says, in the day that you eat of it, he knows that you will become like God. In other words, you can do as you please. You will know the difference between good and evil. You will have wisdom You can make up your own mind. You don't need to ask. That's implicit in the temptation. And so the the conclusion is that there was a relationship with God whereby their ruling, their oversight of the planet was under His leadership, His Lordship. And part of the temptation was to get out from under His Lordship and become independent. The essence of the temptation in, in 3 verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate. The essence of the temptation was to become autonomous. This looks good for food. It's very pretty. I'd like to have it on my table. I'd like to have some of this for myself. And furthermore, I will be smart. I'll be wise. I won't need God. I can call the shots. I can rule my own destiny. I can be in charge. Well... There was a lie wrapped all around that, which they did not see. But that was the essence of it. And and we need to recognize, here's your takeaway from this point, okay? Any time you hear any preacher, Bible teacher, whatever, out there, radio, television, wherever, read a book, any time you hear anybody say that you are destined to be like God, Remember who said that. Because it did not come from God. The temptation, the desire to have power and be in charge is diabolic. We were made to be under authority. We were made to bow to His sovereignty and His Lordship. We were made to walk with Him in agreement and harmony. And anybody that tells you that you can have power, that you can have God-like qualities, that you are destined to, to rule in the sense of autonomous control, is telling you the same lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. There's nothing in the Scripture that says we will ever come to a place where we can be in charge. In fact, if you understand the essence of repentance in the process of salvation in the new birth, repentance is bending the knee once again to God and saying, my way has been foolish. And I turn from it, and I turn to you, and I submit to you, you are my Lord. I come under your authority. I recognize you as Lord. And I repent of my independence and my sin. That's the essence of it. To come back to God and recognize His Lordship. And when we do that, The Scripture says we're born again and true freedom comes. Freedom once again. I told you since the fall, man's will has been in bondage. And it has. We are not free outside of Jesus Christ not to sin. I was driving back from Jeffrey and Hannah's wedding. Jeffrey Herkus 
the second, got married last evening. I was driving back from their wedding from Joliet. I was coming up 355, and everybody was doing 80. The speed limit out there is 55, by the way. And everybody's cooking along about 80 miles an hour. But there were some state police strategically placed in one section of the road, and everyone became righteous all of a sudden. Everybody slowed down, and uh, they knew they could get by with 65, so, so everybody's back to 65 now, just 10 over, not 25. And, uh, and they're righteous for, for a period of time. And then it was obvious that the coast was clear, state police were in the rearview mirror somewhere, and gradually people got back up to 80. What does that tell you? It tells me two very important things. When there is an external fear of judgment, people can be controlled to a certain extent, which means you do have the ability to restrain your behavior if you're afraid of punishment. That's why there is no excuse for murder or theft or anything else because you have the ability to restrain your external behavior if there is an appropriate sense of judgment and fear. And some people have a little extra measure of self-will and they can toss a little self-discipline in there on top of it, get to work on time, do their job, stuff like that. But the other thing it tells me is in your heart of hearts, you really want to drive 80, not 55. And if you don't have anybody watching, that's what you're going to do. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone's a murderer on the outside, but Jesus said if you have hatred in your heart, the seeds of murder are there. The problem is that we can control our external behavior within limitations out of fear of law, and that's the reason God has given us government and law and, and rulers and authorities. That's the reason they're there, to keep civil order so we don't kill ourselves before God brings in the kingdom. You know, if there wasn't some kind of law, by God's gracious provision... Uh, the, the authorities that exist are ordained by God and they are ministers of His unto righteousness, avenging His wrath on the ungodly. If they didn't exist, we'd never make it to the kingdom. It's all part of His plan. But, in our heart of hearts, apart from Jesus Christ, we are hopelessly in bondage to sin. And we cannot... Not sin from the inside. It's a part of who we are. And so the Apostle Paul, before he discovered the liberty of the Spirit in Romans chapter 7, tells us, the things that I want to do, I cannot do, and the things that I hate to do, I find myself doing all the time. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body, not the physical one, but the carnal nature of death? Who will deliver me from this corpus of sin? How will I get out? And he transitions immediately to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he moves into that passage in chapter 8 as he begins to unfold life in the Spirit. And he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law could be fulfilled in me who walk not after my carnal nature, but according to the Spirit of God. So when we come to Jesus Christ and bend the knee and accept His Lordship, we for the first time become free again. We are free from the power of sin by the Holy Spirit to walk in, in righteousness from the inside. You don't have to hate, you can forgive. You can forgive and love your enemy. Jesus Christ gives the capacity to do that. People without Him cannot go there. But people in Jesus Christ are free to love their enemies and to pray for those who despitefully use them. On the other side, 
we are released in the power of the Spirit to do what we ought to do. We are able to act with freedom. Jesus Christ has brought us to a place where we can yield to His Lordship and do what He calls us to. Do you see how paradise is already being recovered in some ways in your own personal life? You are beginning to enjoy again communion with God, fellowship with God, a relationship with God, whereby, through His Spirit, you can live out His will. Isn't that wonderful? We have that freedom. Now, we need to recognize that given that background of underlying truth, that God invites us to be participants with Him in the kingdom in this moment of history because He has given us of His Spirit whereby we can accomplish His purposes here and now. But remember, everything that we will do of eternal significance, we will do under the authority of His Lordship. The other thing that we need to recognize is that God has chosen to work on this planet through human beings. Now, let me go back to my coin a minute and and give you the disclaimer from the other side before you jump to a wrong conclusion. God's plan for the human race, God's plan for human history... God's unfolding plan of redemption and the ushering in of the millennial kingdom is not going to be thwarted because you personally did not get on board with it. God will accomplish His will. And He will find those whose hearts are turned toward Him who will join Him in that work and pray for it. He will not lack for a person that will pray the kingdom. And throughout human history, there's, prayers don't end with, with our death. You read Revelation, you get that image of the prayers of the saints at the altar. Just because we die doesn't mean our prayers are done. I'm not saying you can pray after death. I'm saying that the prayers you pray now that are kingdom-oriented prayers have an effect that go on beyond our lifetime. And so God is not going to, going to suffer because you personally didn't get on board. But on the other side of the coin, there are a couple of things that we do need to, to realize. You will suffer. And the microcosm of the sphere of influence around you may lack the light because you did not open yourself to the purpose of God. What is the scripture for that? God said to Ezekiel, When I say to you, Go to the wicked man and warn him of his wicked ways and tell him of his impending judgment and warn him of the consequence of his sin and you do not do so, I will require, he will die in his sin, but I will require his blood at your hands. But if you go to the wicked man, and if you tell him his sin, and if you proclaim to him the coming judgment, and you warn him of the doom that he is facing, and he does not repent, he will still die in his sin, but I will not hold you responsible. Friends, we ha- and I'm not trying to put fear into you, but sometimes solemnity is a good, good attitude to have. You and I are in this moment of history, we have the privilege of cooperating with the Spirit of God in such a way that we can influence the darkness around us by bringing the light. If we are not light bearers, 
people around us may continue to live in darkness. And when we come to the end of the journey, at the judgment seat of Christ, you remember those six elements, hay, wood, and stubble, gold, and silver, and precious stone, and our lives will be examined as believers. There is no judgment for sin there, per se. The judgment for sin was taken care of in the cross, but there is an examination of the life. What have you done with what I've given you? And Jesus Christ is going to bring our life into the open and look at the consequences, look at the effects, look at the results. Some people... Some people have come to Christ, they have turned from their sin, they've recognized they need a Savior, they come to church, they read their Bible or not, they say their prayers or not, but they kind of muddle through life, still under the philosophy that the one who dies with the most toys wins. And in our Western mentality, they're still pursuing stuff. And they're pursuing careers, and they're pursuing whatever else attracts their fancy, and that's the thing that captivates their attention. And they're going to stand before Jesus Christ, and the sum of their life is going to be examined. And there's not going to be any eternal significance to it. And the fire of that judgment seat is going to consume the fodder of their life, the hay and the wood and the stubble, that have no eternal significance. But other people who have caught it, who understand the bigger picture, who understand their own mission, who recognize that the Spirit of God is in them to effect change around them as well as within them, that God has a purpose for their lives, and they've pursued that purpose, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. And they have pursued the kingdom. And now, all around them are the fruits of their life. People who are standing there because they were faithful to Jesus Christ. Powerful transformation. Miraculous effects that have been worked out in the lives of people in their sphere of influence. And Jesus Christ puts their life to the test and the fire consumes the dross. But there remains gold and silver, and precious stones. Because their lives have counted. And friends, this is where our freedom comes in in this moment. God invites you to make a choice. You can live as a child of God selfishly. And waste your life. And miss what He has for you. Or you can live your life in pursuit of Jesus Christ and His kingdom and find that God places you in opportunities that He has ordained for you to invite Him into the situation to make a difference. In this world, here and now, in the unfolding of His plan, will you get on board or will you stay in the background? And the reality of that is so apparent in Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul writes, For you were created in, in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God ordained beforehand that you should walk in them. It is not a cliche to say God has a plan for your life. When did God ordain the things He wants you to do? When did He determine what He wanted to accomplish through your life? Before He made Adam. We spend a lot of our time going to God trying to give Him ideas on how to run our lives in His universe. When in fact, God already has a plan. And it is a plan that He has ordained before the foundation of the world of good works that you should walk in them and reap the harvest and blessing in partnership with God as you walk through the journey. Now, how does that turn out? 
Jesus announced in Luke chapter 4 that the kingdom of God had come and it was most clearly demonstrated in reversing the effects of sin and the works of the devil. What did Jesus do when he stood in the synagogue? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I don't have dementia. I'm, 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 remem- I'm reminding you of these things on purpose. I'm repeating myself deliberately. He stood up in the synagogue. He read from Isaiah. He read the passage that said, He has appointed me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to, to heal the sick, to cast out demons and to release those who are in bondage. This is, this is the calling. And then He sat down and He said, Today, this word is fulfilled in your hearing. And He went out preaching, The kingdom of God is at hand. What made it the kingdom of God? That Jesus Christ, the man walking on this planet, was pushing back the darkness by healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, making the lame to walk, casting out demons that held people in bondage. He was reversing the effects of sin. He was showing the authority and power of God to reverse the effects of sin and push back the darkness by bringing the light of the gospel. Get that image in your mind. The advancing kingdom pushes back the darkness by reversing the effects of sin and calling men and women to faith in Jesus Christ who has effected the change. And all of this Jesus did as a man operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. He did not act as God in those senses. Again, keep your theology straight. He never ceased to be God. He never lost one shred of His deity. He was fully God, but He never acted as God on this earth. He acted as a man under the authority of His Father. If you doubt that, read the Gospel of John. Everything I do, I do what my Father says. I do nothing of my own. So that means that every healing he did, every prayer he prayed, every decision he made, everywhere he went, he did not do it on his own initiative, but under the Father's. And it is in that context that he says to his disciples in John 14, again I'm repeating myself, get it, get it, get it. I am going away, but I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to put the same Spirit in you that has been in me so that you can do the same works that I have done. In fact, you're going to do greater works because I'm going to my Father. And I'm going to give you my Spirit. And then in John chapter 15, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch can do nothing of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you do anything of yourself unless you abide in me. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, friends, we read that verse, and we are always explaining it away, or forgetting it's there, or basically just trying to pretend he never said it, because frankly, for most of us, it doesn't work. I don't get whatever I want when I pray. I'm a Christian. What did he mean? I must not get it. We forget the preamble. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Who is it that said you can be like God? It was Satan. Who is it that says, come under my lordship, come under my authority, become a follower of me. And I will call you my friends and I will bring you into my heart and into my kingdom. And I will invest you with my spirit so that you can go out and be my ambassador. As you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you ask whatever you wish and it will be done. Listen, friends, most of our praying... is going to God with a wish list and offering Him suggestions on how to run our lives in His universe. 
And God has never promised to answer those prayers. Are you with me? Now, I didn't say it was wrong to pray them. Peter says, cast all your anxiety, all your cares upon him because he cares for you. God cares for you. He is a loving father. He wants to know what's on your heart. And we have a great example of someone praying what they desired and not getting it. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there is any other way. In that moment, in that time, Jesus the man said, I'm looking at the cross and I really don't want to go there. If there's any other way. But he was always careful to say, but not my will, but yours be done. The same thing with the Apostle Paul. Three times he prayed. He got this thorn in his side. Not a physical thorn. Some kind of a problem. We don't know what it was, but it was a problem. And three times he said, Lord, take it away from me. And every time he said that, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient. Now, I don't think Paul prayed this whole prayer in five minutes. I think he prayed, got an answer, went away, tried to deal with it a little longer, got tired of it, came back and said, Lord, I'm really getting tired of this thing. Could you please take it out of my life? And once again, God said, my grace is sufficient. And Paul said, well, all right, I'll try some more. I don't know if that's what happened, but I just just imagine that. But ultimately, God says, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not taking this thing away, but I will manifest my power and my glory in your life. And Paul said, I will therefore glory in my weakness and in my helplessness that the power of God can be demonstrated in me. I submit to the will of my Father. There are many times in Scripture, I I can't imagine, Peter and James get arrested. James gets killed, Peter's released. Do you think that's how the church was praying? Lord, kill James, save Peter? I don't think they were praying that way. I think they were praying, Lord, save James, save Peter. But James dies and Peter's released. Now, I don't know if everybody saw that, but, but that's... I, I can't imagine, you know, most of the people gathered there saying, Lord, make James the first martyr. You know, the first of the apostles to be murdered. Let's, let, that would be great. I just can't imagine that. I think they were probably praying for his release. And as we look at the Scriptures, we find examples of people coming to God, expressing their desires. But the wise ones always are careful to say, But Father, I'm not after my own will here. I want Yours to be done. I submit to You. What is the kind of prayer as... Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray and they encounter this paralytic laying there on the steps. And he looks up at them and says, I need some money to survive. And Peter looks at him and says, I don't have any money. But I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Now, I just, based on everything I've said, I just want to ask you a question. Do you think Peter acted in that moment entirely on his own? Or do you think he was acting in that moment like Jesus Christ? I do nothing on my own initiative. I only do what I hear the Father saying. Here's what I believe happened. I think Peter looked at that guy and I think Peter said, Father, what do you want to do? And he was abiding in Christ and Christ was abiding in him. And the Word of God came to him, speak to him, and raise him up. I'm I'm confident that that's what happened because that has happened to me on a number of occasions. Father, what do you want to do? And I hear the Word of the Lord and I speak what I hear 
And what I say happens every single time. I'm not kidding you. Every time I know that I know that I know that I have heard the word of the Lord, it has come to pass exactly as He has said. It has never failed. And I am confident that Peter looked at that man and said, Father, what do you want to do? And he heard the word of the Lord say to him, Speak to him in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he did, and the man rose and he walked. There is a kind of praying that is carefully couched in the criteria of abiding in Christ and His words abiding in us. And that's not memorizing the Scripture, by the way. That's having the Word of Christ coming to you, dwelling in you. And the Word of Christ abides in you when He speaks that Word. And you, the person in the moment, invested with the Spirit of God, can say with authority, in the name of Jesus, thus and so be done. And He will do that. God wants to break into this world. He wants to use you as the vehicle. And our privilege, friends, our privilege is to be partners with God in the advancing kingdom. And to put ourselves in a position of walking with Him. This doesn't come unless you spend time with Him, unless you're hearing His voice, unless you know it on a regular basis and and you can make that connection. Father, what do you want to do? Sometimes I ask that question and I'll be very honest with you, I don't hear anything. What should you do when you ask the question and you don't hear anything? Can I just give you an honest confession for a moment? I'm in a very awkward position. I'm the pastor. People ask me to pray and they want me to do something. I'm supposed to get results. Now, the truth is I don't have any more power to get any more results than you do. But that's the expectation of the office. And they asked me to, to pray for them, and I'm supposed to pray, and, and something's supposed to happen. And so I say, Father, what do you want to do? And I don't always get an answer. I maybe shouldn't tell you this, but you listen carefully to how I pray and what I ask. And you'll know whether I know or not. But having said that, I think what we really ought to do is we ought to commit it to the Lord and then wait for an answer. Sometimes that, you talk about wrestling in prayer. Wrestling in prayer is not trying to twist God's arm to do what you want. Wrestling in prayer is trying to get past the smoke and mirrors of the circumstance to penetrate to the heart of God and get what He wants to do. That requires diligent listening and waiting. Waiting on God is waiting for the answer. So that you can pray authoritatively. Now, there is no reason why you cannot express to God your heart's desire in the moment. Somebody asked me to pray for them to be healed. I want them to be healed. I believe, in essence, God is a healer. And that's my desire for them. And I can express that desire to God. But you will not hear me saying, rise up and walk, unless I've heard it. I'm not going to take that kind of initiative because I don't have that kind of power. But if God says that's what He wants to do, then that's what He will do. When I was at council this past week, I heard some stories that were truly remarkable. And, and we have a hard time because not all of our prayers 
Not all of our desires and expressions are, are answered the way we think they ought to be. People do still die, and they always will till Jesus comes back. All the mighty apostles, you know what? They've been dead for 1,900 years. All those wonderful people in the first century are gone. They all died eventually, and we will too. But the question is, will we do in this moment what God wants to accomplish? He will break through in His glory and power. We don't see that so much in this country, primarily because we're pursuing the American dream, not the kingdom of God. Primarily because we lack faith. Other parts of the world have more faith. They live more in touch. But there was a doctor, an obstetrician, gynecologist that was in practice here. He heard about the death rate, infant mortality rate in Mali, and he left his practice in the United States, quit it, gave it up, went to Mali to become an OBGYN in the women's clinic there in Mali with our mission. He's been there about six years. He said one day, <clears throat> the chaplain of the hospital came, his, his brother and his brother's wife were out in the, in the tribal village, unbelievers, and uh, had nothing to do with God. But one day, this chaplain's brother and his wife came to the hospital because she had been bleeding for some time and wanted the doctor to examine her. And this physician did the examination, and he said, what I saw was a pelvis filled with cancer. He said, I realized from the extent of the lesions, the scarring, all that was going on, that there was nothing to do but try to provide some pain relief. He said, I brought another physician colleague in to take a look. She concurred. This was a hopeless case, way beyond any kind of help of any sort. The only thing to do was to treat for pain and, and let this woman die, hopefully in peace. And they prayed for her to come to know Jesus Christ and they just and they prayed to her, what would you do? And they prayed for her. And he said about a week, ten days later, this woman comes back into the clinic. Instead of going back to the village, they had stayed by the hospital. She comes back into the clinic and she says, I've come to know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I think he has healed me. I would like you to examine me again. And the doctor said, quite honestly, I see hundreds of people. I didn't remember her all that clearly, but, but um, I said, well, you know, we'll take a look. And he said, on examination, I saw only a spot left about the size of a dime. And he said, I couldn't believe it was the same person. I went out to the chaplain and said, is this your sister-in-law? Is this the same person I saw a week and a half ago? Yes, it is. Are you sure? Yes. There's no, no mistake here. All right, I'm going to get my colleague to re-examine her. So he goes and gets his colleague. I believe she was from France. She goes in and examines the woman. She says, this is not the same patient we saw. This woman has no lesions, a tiny spot. No, this is the same one. Can't be. This chart, this woman had advanced stage 4 cancer. This woman only has a little spot. Cannot be. No, this is the same woman. So he said, I began to realize God was doing something. Duh. And he said, I scheduled her for surgery the next week, thinking that obviously the thing to do now was to remove the offending spot that was left, and, and uh, take the threat away from her. And so he scheduled her for surgery, and the next week she came in, and he said, we did our pre-surgical exam, and there was no spot. He said, in fact, there was a perfectly healthy person with no evidence of cancer. Of course, they didn't do the surgery. And he said, I realized then that God had healed her the first time. He saved the spot for me because I needed to see his power. And he said, I saw that God was able. And this doctor was a changed man because he realized there's a great physician in heaven 
who still has authority and power. Does that mean God is going to heal every woman of cervical cancer all over the world? It does not. But it does mean that when you're confronted with a situation, the question is, Father, what do you want to do? Now, this doctor prayed for healing, but he frankly did not believe there was going to be any healing. He prayed for salvation, had no idea if she'd be saved. God astounded him. I don't think he prays quite the same way anymore. Something has happened in his heart. You just see it in his face. And because of that, salvation came to the household and the influence and the power of God came into the situation. There was, every time we met, they interviewed a missionary couple or family or individual that was going to, to some place to serve, and they would bring them up on the platform, just kind of do an interview, so question and answer. You could tell it was all canned, you know, a little bit. Uh, they had preset the questions. But the idea was to bring out what's going on. And this one family came up this past Sunday morning. They had four children, husband and wife. They had already been evicted from one Muslim country. And they assume their missionary career was over, but they have been invited by the CNMA to go back in as the team leaders in another closed-access country. Now, how do you go into a country and be a witness for Jesus Christ where you're not allowed to witness for Jesus Christ? Where you cannot speak openly. You can answer questions, but you cannot go out and evangelize. And so, uh, and also, your life is at risk. Um, Jihadist radicals are not noted for following international law. And, and they may not just evict you. They may do worse. And so here they're talking. This couple's in their 30s. They're talking to them. And they said, how, you know, how do you deal with this situation? And, and the woman just so deeply impressed me because with, with radiant joy, she said, well, there is the fear thing. But she says, as long as I'm where God wants me to be, I'm not worried about that. She didn't say she wasn't afraid. She said, I'm just not worried about it. I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in the hands of God. And she says, as far as the work, <laughs> some of us, some of us have a hard time witnessing to the person in the neighborhood. She says, in a closed access country, it's, no, it's not hard at all. It's easy. She says, we just allow the Holy Spirit to use his gifts through our family. She said, for example, my daughter has the gift of hospitality. And, and, I, and I let her exercise her gift. She likes to invite neighbors and friends over for dinner parties. And she plans the menu and she sets the table. And, and she said, I will even give her a, a wad of money and send her to the market to, uh, to buy the food. And, and said, my daughter's pretty good at haggling. In the marketplace, she can barter and she can work it around and, you know, get what she wants. And, and, she, and she says, people love children. They just love children. And who can turn down, you know, this, this, this girl is seven. Most people in that situation would not want their kids out on the street. She sends her daughter to the market to buy food for the guests. Who can turn down a seven-year-old when they invite you over for dinner or tea or whatever? And she said, I, children open the door. She said, I just let my children use their gifts. We just are who we are. The Holy Spirit works through us. We commit our lives to what He wants to accomplish that day. And people come to our house and ask us questions. Isn't that amazing? Father, what do you want to do? What do you want to do in this situation? Ravi Zacharias was our keynote speaker. He told the story of starting a series of meetings. I think it was New York or Washington or somewhere over there. And one of the um, people who came to the meeting was an ambassador from a former Soviet bloc country. And, and he was introduced to Ravi, and he said, I mean, how would you like to be ready to start a series of meetings and have someone say right out of the gate, I just want you to know I hate Christians. I hate the Christian message. I hate everything about what you're doing. But it was a special occasion for my wife, and I asked her what she would like as a gift. And my wife, who is a Christian, 
said, I want you to go with me to hear Ravi Zacharias. Now, don't you know that woman was saying, Father, what do you want me to do? What do you want to do in this situation? Invite your husband. Tell him that's the one gift he could give you that would mean more than anything else in all the world. Invite your husband. And so he said, I'm here only because she asked me to come. I wouldn't be here any other way. And I really don't want to be here now, but I made a commitment. And Ravi said, that's all right. If you feel any time during my talk that you need to leave, I'll, you just get up and walk out. I'll look the other way and give you the courtesy of a graceful exit. By the end of the week, their 17-year-old son had made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Within a few weeks, this man came to faith in Jesus Christ. He came so alive in Christ that as he went back to his country, he has invited Ravi to come speak to the president of the cabinet because he said they need to hear the message that you have. Father, what do you want to do in this situation? When we are confronted with life's challenges and life's opportunities, friends, we are ambassadors of the King of Kings. We are not there by accident. The overarching question in our hearts and minds should be, Father, what do you want to do in this situation? And when we hear the answer, we need to pray it into existence. God has spoken. Now we can pray with authority in the name of Jesus. Lord, in the name of Jesus, compel my husband to come with me. Lord, in the name of Jesus, heal this person that your glory may be demonstrated among this people. Lord, in the name of Jesus, go with my daughter today as she goes to the marketplace and use her winsome personality to touch the hearts of other moms and bring them into my home that they can ask questions about us and we can tell them about Jesus. Father, what do you want to do? We are in this moment in history. We have an opportunity And our opportunity is to find out what God wants to do. We're not here to tell Him what to do. We're here to find out what He wants to do and then to pray that thing into existence by the prayer of faith and to make ourselves available as the instrument. And Jesus said, if you do this, You will bear much fruit and your joy will be made full. When he talked about the abundant life, he was talking about a life that was lived in fellowship with him and with his father in the joyful accomplishment of his purposes and knowing. I mean, imagine. God heals this woman of stage 4 invasive cancer. But imagine the joy of the doctor. Unbelievable! Wow! God, this is amazing! How would you like to be there in that moment? Don't you think that's joy? How would you like to be there when God does... Who are we going to reach today, Lord? And your daughter brings home some people. And they start asking you, what are you doing here? How come your kid's so friendly? How come your marriage is so cool? How come your home... And you can talk about. You want joy? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you that you can bear much fruit, and that your joy will be made full. Father, help us to see our part. You have restored to us salvation and a part of paradise in our own lives. We are guaranteed a place in your kingdom, for you have placed on deposit in our hearts the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest the down payment of our assured salvation. Let us live our lives, Lord, 
in cooperation with your will and purpose, that along the journey we might walk in those good works that you have prepared for us. And in the prayer of faith, command and pray in your will and purpose for this earth. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.